Yeah, that AGM, Deborah reminded me, that was actually super fun. And Deborah and I had a lot of fun together. Deborah's fun. The people that came from Nelson and the other sites, it was so great. Um, my favorite moment, I think, was I, we were sitting at a table. We were all tired, so it was kind of like this the Saturday, done a lot of budget money stuff, and, and um, there was another church that was there, and they said, um, hey, we're looking for a pastor. And Deborah and I were sitting at a table, and there's some other people, and we were meeting them, and they're like, hey, we're looking for a pastor. And I'm like, and they were telling us about their town. Where was it? It was like some like, no-name place in Manitoba. I can't remember. Remember that conversation, though? And then I was, I was kind of ribbing with them, and they were like, oh, if things don't work out, Nelson, you can come over here. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm, I'm here for Nelson for a long time. This is great. And Deborah's like, you're not taking him. And almost had to break up that fist fight. And then, um, and then the, <laughs> at one point, I, don't, I was just in one of those silly moods. If I, get, if I get too intense for too long, I kind of break out and get really silly and I uh, kind of let my guard down against Deborah, and I paid for it. Because what I said to her is I said, um, I turned to the lady beside me who was a part of this church, and I said, you know, um, just don't, just understand that you're never going to get everything in a pastor. You know, I said, um, you know, sometimes when churches are looking for someone, they're looking for someone that can be all things to all people, and you can't. You know, you might get someone who's good doing one thing and not good at the other. And I said, you know, just don't, and I said, just lower your expectations in terms of, um, in terms of outward appearance. I said, not everybody, not every church can get a tall, dark, handsome pastor like me. And I said, Nelson did, but you can't, you can't just assume that's what God has for you. And I turned to Deborah for affirmation. She looks at me and she's like, yeah, but you only have one eye, Cyclops. <laughs> right there. There it was. And then Deborah and I, I went home and I was like, Heather, be careful. Don't, don't put Deborah and I in the same room. We have too much fun together. It's too crazy. Oh, man. Okay, let's, uh, let's get things started this morning in terms of our teaching. Do we got the PowerPoint going, Mark? We are in the middle of a series where we're essentially landing on Jesus' great commandment. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked point blank what should be the driving priority of one's life. And this is what he says to them. He says to people asking that question, the most important command which is a Jewish way of saying the most important priority, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment. There's no priority greater than these things. So we're in this series where we're looking at this commandment and trying to figure out how do we connect that command to the realities that we face every day. Because Jesus says this should be the driving priority. And in one sense, Jesus says this is what Christians should be known for. When you ask people, uh, your neighbor is a Christian, what do you expect from that person? They should say, oh, I bet you that's someone who's really serious about loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving their neighbor as themselves. Now, I'm going to guess if you went to some of your neighbors in Nelson and said, your neighbor's a Christian, tell me what you think they're going to be like. They might not say, oh, they're definitely people who love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jesus says, this is what I want to be the defining feature and characteristics of my people. And we're exploring this command through the language of kind of spiritual love languages or certain types. I come from a psychology background where we all experience God in different ways slightly, right? Based on our own experiences and what God has done in and through us. But all, even though there's a lot of diversity, they can be kind of broadly categorized, I think, into four predominant ways through which we experience God. 
You might be a heart type and you experience God primarily through community. It's not that you only experience God this way, but the primary way you connect to God and have a sense of vibrancy in your life is through Christian community. A soul type, we'll talk about that today, experiencing God through prayer and and worship, praise. Mind, experiencing God through scripture. Strength, experiencing God through tangible acts of serving, giving and giving of yourself to other people in practical ways. And so today we're going to be exploring the soul type. We're going to be exploring those who connect to God most readily during times of prayer and worship. Now I use the word worship, I probably should use the word praise because Romans 12 makes it very clear that what worship is in the biblical sense is living your whole life in obedience to God. Living your life as a sacrifice of praise to God is worship. We tend to think of worship as like singing worship songs, but... I'm just using worship, um, prayer and worship in that sense of taking time to uh, praise God, whether privately or in a group setting. Let's look at, um, just before we move into our passage, I want to kind of set the stage for one of the major themes of Scripture, which is found in Genesis 1 and 2. In the opening chapters of Genesis, that's the first book of the Bible, it's Genesis means beginnings, God creates this universe, and he creates the universe in such a way that it's very obvious he's trying to create a home a lot of people, especially in our context, are jumping to Genesis 1 and we move right into like trying to read it. Oh, is this like six-day creation? Is this uh, evolution? Is it some weird hybrid of them? What's going on here? We try, we're trying to dissect it like a scientific text. And when we do that, uh, we create problems for ourselves because we miss the, the broader truth that comes through, which is, When God decided to create something, he didn't create it out of vengeance or violence like many of the other creation myths, like the Enuma Elish in Babylon said. God created his world with harmony and order and out of love and community. And so God says, let there be, let there be. And he creates all these structures first, and then he fills up those structures. And God is building a home. And some commentators will say, it's like God is building a temple that will be shadowed later in the building of God's temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's uh, temple. But it's really a temple where the whole universe is meant to be God's temple. The whole universe is meant to be the place that is filled with the glory of God. And every creature in the universe is meant to experience this harmony and shalom with God. So the Bible right from the start does not present God as some distant figure who yes, maybe creates, but he kind of creates from a billion miles away and just kind of does stuff in some corner of the galaxy. In the first two chapters of Genesis, you see this God who is intimately involved in forming and crafting all these, all the dimensions of the universe as we know it. And then he creates life and he creates a special kind of life, Adam. And Adam is created from the dust, but he's given something that no other living living being is given. He's given the breath of God. And, and this is a creature that's going to bear the image of God. And then God forms Adam, and then from Adam forms Eve, these kind of dual image bearers. But the whole picture in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God is doing this delicately, and he's doing it personally. He doesn't, you know, in one sense, delegate this to someone else. This is God getting his hands dirty and creating. And it's this very personal, intimate picture that you have of God. Now, in chapter 3, it's so intimate that we read that in the cool of the day, God walks in this garden that he's created for Adam and Eve. The, the earth and the universe wasn't just, in a sense, meant to be our home. It was also God intended it to be his home as well. God's very at home in the garden. He's walking in the cool of the day. 
But Adam and Eve decide to trust a serpent instead of trusting God. And that's when one of the dominant themes of Scripture begins to kind of fall over like a domino and move forward. This harmony and this shalom, this integrative peace that you see in the early chapters of Genesis, it gets shattered. And God begins very quickly trying to restore and bring back, pull back together these elements where there was harmony and now there's disharmony. Sin has created brokenness. And so as the biblical story unfolds, what you're really getting is a picture of God trying to reclaim, get back people into community and communion and fellowship with him. People have been alienated from God, they've been exiled, and now God's trying to get them back. So right from the start of Scripture, we see this really important idea that God has always intended and is fighting for a close relationship with us, an intimate relationship with us. Not that we would just know God as an idea, but that we would know God as a personal experience. And soul types kind of feel and know that in their bones. They understand that humans aren't, don't just like, aren't just like, um, they understand that humans like need a relationship with God. Not that it's just like some accessory and if you have time for it, but like soul types understand that they need and all people need a relationship with God. Soul types, maybe more than the other types, are haunted by this suspicion that we're meant to have intimacy with God and they long to connect with God in ways that, are, that lead to closeness and a vibrancy, not just of ideas, but of, of personal experience. So to love God with all of our souls, to love God through our souls, to me, means that we love and experience God probably most acutely during times of prayer, private praise, worship, maybe some solitude, scripture meditation. The scripture that best probably expresses the heart longing of a soul type is Psalm 4610, be still, and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Not just get that there is a God or know that there, you, by being still, we know that I am God. I want to reveal myself to you. I want you to know in your bones that I am real. Soul types probably more than the other types don't get caught up in doing. They focus instead on cultivating a rich connection to God through prayer. Soul types are often interested in forms of prayer where they're invited to listen as God speaks through scripture, spending prayerful, reflective time in his presence. This lends itself to being attracted to certain practices that maybe lean in a more contemplative direction, contemplative prayer, Lectio Divina. Um, soul types enjoy spending long uh, periods where they're just, um, as best as they know how, availing themselves to God by just being surrendered to him in a place of prayer and intimacy. One of the things that I've noticed about soul types in my experience pastorally is that they often go unnoticed in churches, especially evangelical churches. Um, I think this is because they don't really show up on the leadership's radar a lot of the time. Soul types tend not to be, in my experience at least, kind of big movers and shakers, and they tend to be kind of low-maintenance uh, Christians if you think about it, like heart types are like, this church needs to be doing more to get involved in community. We need to be doing more of this. And mind types are like, we should be doing more teaching and the teaching isn't strong enough and we need more of this, less of this. And strength types are like, we need to be doing more. We need to be serving. And my experience is soul types are kind of like, it's okay, we should probably just like do less and pray a little bit more. And 
They're not as dependent on programs because their, their, their primary love language isn't mediated through other things often that are happening. They can just get away whenever they want. And so often churches don't appreciate them, I think. And I think sometimes soul types don't really feel at home in evangelical churches because so much of evangelical churches are about um, community and getting in the word and getting out there and doing stuff. And uh, I think certain evangelical churches will definitely speak the language of prayer, but I don't think it's a native love language for a lot of churches. And so soul types, I think of all the types, are the most underrepresented in a lot of evangelical churches because we don't appreciate them and say, we're going to create a space for you and we want to learn from you how to just be still and know God. Spirit, uh, soul types are a real gift to the church. I know many in my life, they've been a gift to me because they keep us from falling into the trap of grounding our faith in anything less than a relationship with God. Heart types can be tempted to idolize community. Mind types can be tempted to idolize knowledge. Strength types can be tempted to emphasize and idolize activity and getting stuff done. And, and mature soul types just challenge the rest of us to just remember that God wants to know us personally and keep that relationship strong. And that's such an important thing for the rest of us. They challenge us to recognize that prayer isn't something that if you have time, you should probably get around to it. It's central to the Christian life because in prayer, theology becomes experience. That's how you kind of hold these things together. In prayer, theology becomes experience. Soul types, though, if, there, if there's kind of a dark side to soul types, I would say it's, um, if soul types don't grow into the other types, if they don't learn to experience God through community and go deeper into the text and go deeper into serving, I think there can be a, a temptation to, in a noble pursuit of wanting to know God personally, extract themselves from responsibilities and, and things that actually do need to be done in order to kind of pursue this deeper, unpolluted experience of God through prayer. I mean, just think about, in a, um, even a stereotypical sense, kind of like the, uh, the monastic tradition, where we're going to extract ourselves out of the world because it's such a distraction. We're going to create a perfect environment for us to experience God. And I know that's a bit of a stereotype, and people from the monastic tradition would say that's not quite fair that we're just pursuing a personal experience with God, but that would be my major uh, critique of that movement, is it places too much emphasis on isolation and solitude moving out from the world, where I think the mission of Jesus is about pushing us into the world and into our neighborhoods and communities, not escapism. But I think escapism, in the name of wanting to know God more intimately, can be a particular uh, temptation point for soul types. Prayer isn't a method of escaping reality. Prayer is a method of entering into a deeper reality, affirming and confirming who God is, who we are, what we're being called to do. That isn't a flight from reality, that's a movement into reality. Christians famous speak, uh, speak famously of being in the world but not of the world, but if soul types don't learn to love God with their heart, mind, and strength as well, they might find themselves detached from the world and actually unable to impact it as a disciple while they're pursuing this really deep, connection with God. So again, we're not, this isn't a test or anything. I just want to know by way of interest, how many people here would self-identify as a soul type? They would say, I connect to God primarily through times of prayer and extended maybe personal worship. Let's put your hand up pretty high. That's actually a fair amount of people for a church of this size. That's actually pretty encouraging. And my encouragement to you guys would be that we need you 
We need people who are going to prioritize prayer and worship and keep us focused on guarding that place of connection with God. We need people who can help lead us into an experience of God as Father, of Jesus as friend, as the Spirit, as a counselor. God is a God who wants to be close to us, and soul types can help us on that journey. We need to look to them for help. In our scripture today, there's this really powerful line, and I'm just going to teach on this line this morning really quickly. A lot is happening in this verse. Jesus is miraculously healing someone who has leprosy, which is a terrible affliction to have in general, but even more so in the ancient world. The context is this. Jesus has been, Jesus' ministry is launched. Things are happening. There's a buzz about Jesus. Miracles are happening. People are hearing his teachings. They want to know more. People want, are bringing their sick, their destitute. People who have no hope are coming to Jesus. Crowds are beginning to press around him. Even though, as we see in this account in Luke 5, Jesus is trying to keep a lid on it, like kind of like this is, I don't, want, I don't want the word to get out right yet. Like just go and offer your sacrifice to Moses, but like don't tell anybody what's happened. But you can't help it. The kingdom's breaking forth. Ministry is exploding. Life is super busy. All good things in general. Awesome things are happening. The kingdom of God is breaking into people's lives and people are experiencing healing and restoration and redemption and salvation and Jesus is rocketing into prominence. He's rocketing into, pro- into popularity. And then we have this line. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This movement, withdrawing to lonely places and praying, is pretty natural for a soul type. But for the rest of us, it's very, very difficult. But I want to break down almost every word there and show you why it's critical for us. Look at the first word, but. It just says, but. All this stuff was happening, but Jesus withdrew. Jesus interrupted, his, interrupted the flow of life, even when things were going really, really well, to pray. My excuse is that I'm too busy to pray. All these things are happening. Lots of good things are happening. I'm totally going to get to prayer once kind of the dust settles and things kind of get worked out. We see something different. Things are going great. Things are exploding. Things are very busy. All good things, but... Jesus stops to pray. And notice that it's Jesus who stops to pray. It says, but Jesus. And at the risk of sounding simplistic, I want us to think about something. If Jesus stopped to withdraw and pray, and we don't, individually or collectively, in what sense would it make, how does it make sense for us to call ourselves Christians? Christian is a follower of Jesus. We look for the patterns in Jesus' life and say, I want to follow Jesus, his teachings, but also his example. And so if we never withdraw to pray, that's strange. And if this is something that Jesus had to do as someone who is fully God and fully man, and we think we don't need to do it, or it doesn't strike us as really up on the priority list, it's on the top 10. It's just not like one or two. That might, you know, I think the scripture invites and challenges us to rethink that posture. And I say that, I'm not saying that glibly as someone for whom prayer comes naturally. Prayer does not come naturally to me. Of heart, soul, mind, and strength, of all of these ways of experiencing God, this is probably the one that I have to work on the most. I have to be the most intentional. Because for me, I will talk about prayer, teach about prayer, read about prayer, think about prayer, discuss prayer, way before I'll actually pray. 
but Jesus does it. I need to learn to do this. Biblically, prayer is grounded in a simple fact that things happen when you pray that wouldn't happen if you didn't pray. And so Jesus says, this is why I pray. We have an opportunity to help shape reality, and Jesus models that. We need to follow. It says it's done often. Jesus often does this. This wasn't a one-off. This is a regular pattern of his life. Not just in emergencies. Those kind of emergency prayers are totally valid. But this is something different. This is a pattern of prayer where Jesus is often. It's a rhythm of his life. It's just kind of inhale, exhale. As the truest expression of what a human being looks like, Jesus models this consistent dependence on private prayer and praise to God. Jesus, it says, withdrew. And this is important because this isn't like an on-the-fly prayer. You know, like, I do this all the time. This is how often I justify not withdrawing. I'm like, I pray all the time. I'm in the grocery store. I'm walking here. I'm going about my day, and I'm like throwing up like arrow prayers, right? Like, quick little prayers. Those are totally valid. Good way to pray. But Jesus withdraws. He steps out of life as usual in order to kind of clear the rubble of the mind and heart and to focus on God. Think about what's happening. All these people are crowding in on Jesus. They want more people to be healed. They want more teaching. It's not that bad things are happening. All these good things are happening. And Jesus still says, I need to get away from this and guard my time with my Father. And again, if Jesus is doing that, if Jesus needed to do that, then we need to do that as well. We need to withdraw. If we don't withdraw from kind of the normal Monday through Sunday spaces that we're in, it's hard to get perspective and it's hard to get the distance needed to evaluate what God would have me do and if, and if there are any tweaks or things that God needs to get a hold of my attention on. Jesus withdraws. And then it says to lonely places. Deborah read out of a transition, uh, translation. It's a way better translation. The word there doesn't mean lonely place. It's eremos, and it means desert or wilderness. The, when people translate it lonely, they're trying to get at the idea that it's a place of isolation and solitude. So I get that, but I think it's better to call it wilderness or desert because those are actually tangible places. Uh, Israel runs kind of north and south, and on the east part of Israel was a place known as the wilderness, and it was a desert. It was a dangerous place. The wilderness in the Old Testament has two parts to it. It's the place that is very dangerous, and there's some sense in which there's, there's lots of threat and danger there. So when God leads the Israelites into the wilderness, into the desert, they're scared. Are we going out here to die? Can God really protect us from these forces in the desert? And yet God shows himself in the desert in very powerful and personal and intimate ways. And in Jeremiah, God says, in the desert, I called to you like a bridegroom. I, I, I held you together in this intimacy. So the desert has these two places. And we see in Jesus' life, on the one hand, when he's tempted in the desert by the devil, that's when Jesus goes into the de desert to face that side of the desert. But Jesus withdraws to desert places here to that place of intimacy with God. Jesus withdraws somewhere different, somewhere that's distinct. And the, the word that I use, if you think of nothing else in reference to today, just remember this. It is important to go to a desert place, and a desert place is a place of voluntary under stimulation. I choose to go somewhere where there will be as little activity and buzz around me as possible, as possible. I know that isn't easy for everybody, but I do that in order to be available to God. Maybe even for five or 10 minutes, that's okay. 
But the desert is a place of voluntary understimulation where we try and strip all the distractions away so that we can connect with God in ways that are intimate and personal. And I think the idea there is, is that you need to go to the desert because probably none of us are really good at multitasking prayer. Prayer plus a lot of other stuff. Like we'd like to, believe, like we'd like to do that. It'd be, I'd be a lot more efficient. But there are times you just need to get away to a desert place because sometimes prayer can only be kind of, kind of capital P prayer when that's our only focus. And there's just nothing else. No cell phones. No, you know, just... And there's lots of places, lots of wilderness places around here. So we have no excuse. We should just go off in the bush, grab some bear spray, and we'll, we'll have times of intimacy with God and hopefully not with any wild creatures. And lastly, it says, Jesus does all this and he prays. Jesus didn't often withdraw to lonely places to think. Jesus didn't often withdraw to lonely places to pursue meaningful introspection. Thinking is not a bad thing. Introspection is not a bad thing. Please don't hear that. But he withdraws to pray. And thinking and reflection and introspection can sometimes, I know it is for me, maybe it isn't for you, I can sometimes substitute those things instead of prayer. I go to a desert place to think instead of just say, God, let's just spend time together and let's just pray. Jesus goes to lonely places to pray. This isn't a movement that's about just clearing my head so that I can think straight or that I can clear the rubble of what's going on in my life so that I can come up with a plan. It's about getting rid of all the stuff that is keeping me from experiencing a time of communion with God where God has as much unobstructed access to me as I know how to give him. And I can just be with God. So this week what I'm going to invite you to do is only one thing I want you to take action on is that I want us to try and do this just once this week. I want us to withdraw to a desert place and pray. And if you don't know how to pray or you don't know what to pray, I totally get that. I've just created a little outline in your bulletin. You can pick a psalm or maybe use the Lord's Prayer, pray that, and then just pray even with one thing related to this church, your family, friends, maybe your marriage or a key relationship in your life your hopes, your fears, your burdens, and then end in praise. Maybe the doxology, maybe a worship song. That's a simple little outline. It might take you five minutes. You could extend it out and it could take you 20. And for the soul types here, you're going to be like, that's easy. That's no problem. Great. Keep doing it. And maybe invite someone else along with you if you know someone who's like, I, I don't even, I can't spend more than 30 seconds in prayer. Bring them along with you and say, this is what it looks like. And for the rest of us, we've got to do this, though. We've got to prioritize this. It's not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, or strength, whatever works for you. It's all of these dimensions. And this is hard for me to do. This is honestly hard. If I'm going to fail, if, I, if I'm totally honest, if I'm going to fail as your pastor, the areas where I'm weakest is areas where I will just intuitively, for all kinds of reasons, move to doing things before I will move to this kind of intentional prayer. So this is a real battle for me. So you can be praying for me as one of your friends on here or Nelson Church. But I don't say this lightly as someone for whom this comes uh, second nature to. This is a battle for me. But this is something we need to do. 
In Genesis, Adam and Eve are alienated from God. They trust the serpent, they don't trust God, they're alienated from God. The universe designed to be a home where God and humanity live in this joy and harmony becomes a place that's poisoned and dysfunctional and sin rips this connection and the shalom apart. And now there's discord and there's chaos and there's bitterness. And the Bible even says there's enmity. We are bent against God. We don't give a rip about God anymore. We want to try and live life on our own. And we're exiled from God. We don't have friendship with God. We're exiled from his presence. We're exiled from his friendship. And so this this question kind of looms at the end of Genesis 3. How do you get back home? What are we going to have to do to, to mend this relationship? How do you do that? How do you reconnect with God? And as you read the biblical story and as it unfolds, the message is pretty clear. We're, we're not going to be able to mend it. We, we can't do it. There's nothing we can do to undo this curse of sin, this poison that is now part of our DNA against God. But the gospel, the good news is, is that Jesus has done something on our behalf that allows us to bridge that chasm of disconnection and alienation from God. Jesus on the cross has made a way to regain friendship with God. See, Jesus allowed himself to be exiled from God so that we could come home. That's, that's the gospel good news. Jesus didn't just go to the wilderness, the, the good elements of the wilderness where we have intimacy with God. He allowed himself to be cast into the wilderness of condemnation and alienation from God so that we could be brought in. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is being forsaken so that we can come home. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's why Christians proclaim that Jesus is the only way through which you can have communion and community and friendship with God because it's only through Jesus that you can be reconciled to God. Only Jesus has done what has to happen in order to make enemies of God now friends with God. And so this week my prayer for us is that we would interrupt whatever is happening We would seek out a desert space, a wilderness space, a lonely space, and we'd pray, and we'd be still, and we'd pray about anything and everything. Don't worry about the language. Just be honest before God. And I believe that if we do that, God will move us into an experience of knowing him. Be still and know that he is God. Let's pray. God, as we close our time here, we love you. And we want to know you, not just about you, not just ideas in the abstraction, God. Would you please teach us to pray so that in this dimension of our relationship with you, we grow and we grow deep. Thank you for good news. Thank you for being exiled on our behalf so that we could come home. In Jesus' name, amen.